We're in the midst of a series focused on the theme of spiritual growth. And we've been saying that you'll never make any progress in the Christian life until you discover your true identity. The novelist Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man, was once asked, is the search for identity primarily an American theme? And he replied by saying, it is the American theme. Especially as Americans, we believe that we have to be free to choose our own identity in order to become our authentic selves. Now, on the one hand, that's ennobling because there's no one restricting you. There's no one forcing you to try to become something that you're not. But if we're going to create our own identity, that can also become anxiety-inducing because there's so many options to choose from. Who should we be? There's too much pressure to perform. We've got to choose it, do it, and then keep it up. And then there are so many unmet expectations. So our sense of self, if we choose our own identity, can rise and fall based on our ever-shifting preferences and choices and accomplishments and affiliations. But when you place your faith in Jesus, when you place your faith in Jesus and become a Christian, you don't lose your individual identity. You, you don't lose that which is unique or special to you, but you become the fullest version of yourself. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is because God created you to be united to him. So you'll never discover who you really are. You'll never find your deepest, truest self apart from him. Apart from God, you're going to miss something key to your humanity as well as your identity. So rather than creating your own identity by trying to find yourself, we discover who we really are by being found in Christ. Now that's Paul's language. That's what he talks about in the passage that is before us today. So last week on Pentecost Sunday, Chris Hildebrand talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in our Christian life as, as, in terms of growing as a, as a Christian. But today I'd like us to return to Philippians chapter 3, and I'd like us to consider three things, the, the source, the process, and the goal of the Christian life. What's the source? What's the process? What's the goal of the Christian life? So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Philippians chapter 3. You'll find the passage printed on page 981 in the Pew Bible. You'll also find it uh, printed in the order of worship. I'll be reading verses 7 through 16. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. 
Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words will remain nothing more than letters on a page. Apart from you, your Bible will remain a closed book. And therefore, we pray that by your grace, the very same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, first of all, what is the source of the Christian life? What I'd like to quickly do is retrace some of our steps and then cover new ground. And part of the reason behind that is because what we're talking about when, when it comes to growth in Christ is a little abstract from time to time. And as we look at this from several different angles, I'm trying to press some of these truths deeper and deeper into your heart and into your life. So two weeks ago, we talked about how Paul discovered the secret to finding his identity in Christ. And it was all bound up with this word righteousness. Now that's a heavy theological word. Most people probably think that righteousness refers to moral purity. If you're righteous, you're morally pure, but that's not quite right. Because the word righteousness at its core is a relational word. To be righteous means to be in right relationship with another person or with a group of people. And if that's true, well, then that means that the opposite of righteousness is not impurity. The opposite of righteousness is rejection. And the essence of righteousness, therefore, means acceptance, to find favor. And I suggested that none of us can live without righteousness. We're all looking for some kind of righteousness. We can't live with some kind of verdict coming from outside of ourselves that tells us that we're accepted, that we've found favor, that we're welcomed into the heart of things, that we're significant and secure. We count. Our lives mean something. And therefore, we're going to be okay. And that's why you could sum up all of sin and salvation in terms of this one word, righteousness. You could say that the essence of sin is simply trying to establish a righteousness of your own. Whereas salvation is receiving the righteousness of Christ as a gift. That's the heart of Christianity, to receive the righteousness of Christ as a gift. And that was Paul's experience. To his own shock and surprise, he realized that everything that he thought he was doing to contribute to his own righteousness was actually leading him farther and farther away from God. And so he uses a financial metaphor. He says, everything that I thought was to my gain, I later found out was to my loss. Everything that I thought was to my credit, I later realized was being debited from my account, it was being taken away. And so he sums this up in, in verses 8 and 9. He says... I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you see, that's what it means to become a Christian. To be a Christian means you undergo a transfer of trust. You no longer trust in yourself for your standing, your acceptability before God, but rather you trust in Jesus. So you transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus. You're no longer relying on your righteousness for your standing or acceptability before God. Now you're trusting solely in Jesus and his righteousness for your standing and acceptability before God. And so when you put simple trust in Jesus, 
Well, then God puts you in right relationship with himself. You are declared righteous in his eyes, and therefore you receive a status. You see, righteousness is a relational word. So to be righteous in God's eyes means not that you're morally pure, but that you receive a status. And this status cannot fluctuate or change. It is fixed because it's not based on your performance. It's based on Jesus's performance. And as a result of that, that's how you discover your true identity. That's how you discover who you really are. You now know that you matter because you matter to God. And nothing in this world can ever touch that or take it away. But the question, of course, is, well, how exactly does that work? And the answer is union with Christ. And I said that union with Christ is the one doctrine that perhaps you've never heard of, or it is at least the one doctrine that you are most likely to take for granted. The basic idea is that faith so unites you to Jesus that everything that is true of him becomes true of you. So I use the analogy of marriage. When a couple gets married, they hold everything in common. Everything that belongs to the one belongs to the other. And so union with Christ is like marriage. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are united to him. And like marriage, you're either married or you're not. You can't be a little bit married. And so it is with union with Christ. If you put your trust in him, you can't be a little bit united to Jesus. Either you are united or not. And if you're united to him, then you have all of him. All that is his becomes yours, and all that is yours becomes his. And that's what sets up this wonderful exchange. So Jesus takes your sin, your guilt, your death, and he gives you his innocence, his righteousness, his life. And that's what changes everything. Because based on that union with Christ... God treats Jesus as if he had lived your life with all of its mistakes and failures. But he treats you as if you had lived Jesus' life with all of his holiness, with all of its perfection. And that becomes the bedrock. That becomes the foundation of your identity in Christ. So you got that? We just retraced our steps. That's several weeks right there. Now let's cover some new ground. Let me give you a new image that is based on this passage from Philippians chapter 3. It's an athletic image. Some of you may be familiar with the runner, Eric Liddell, whose story was told in the 1981 film Chariots of Fire. Now he won the gold medal in the 400-meter dash at the 1924 Paris Olympics, but one year before that, in July of 1923, he ran the quarter-mile race in a British competition, which might have been even more impressive. Because here's what happened. Right out of the gate, as he comes around the first bend, he trips over the legs of another runner. Some people think that he was actually pushed and shoved off the track, but he ends up falling down and lands in the grass. Now, what would you do in that situation? Most people would think, a quarter-mile race, this doesn't last very long. If you fall off the track, it's over. Accept defeat. Walk home. But not Eric Liddell. He gets up off of his feet, and even though the pack of runners are now 20, 30 yards ahead of him, he decides that he is going to speed off like a shot. And within two yards of the finish line, he actually passes the lead runner and wins the quarter-mile race. And afterwards, as you can imagine, he's so completely spent, so exhausted, he just falls down right there at the finish line. Now, people who were there that day, would say, 35 years later, reflecting back on that moment, it was the most astonishing athletic feat that they had ever witnessed in their lives. 
Now, Paul here in this passage is, is asking us to think of a runner speeding down the track. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture the racetrack. And in one lane, I want you to imagine Jesus. So Jesus sets off down this track. And let's make things a little more interesting. We got a lot of feedback here. <laughs> let's make things a little more interesting. Let's say that rather than running the 400 meter, Jesus runs the 400 meter with hurdles. And he runs it flawlessly. He, he clears every hurdle without any effort at all, it's, so it seems. And, and then he just breaks the world record. He runs a perfect race. All right, but then afterwards, he, he, he's led to the winner's circle. He, he walks up on top of the podium. What does he receive for running this flawless race? The laurel wreath, right? He, he receives the victor's crown. He receives the gold medal. So in the one lane, there's Jesus. But then in the other lane, there's you. Now, this is meant to be humorous. Everyone at the first service didn't pick this up, okay? This is meant to be humorous. In the one lane, there's Jesus. In the second lane, there's you. Now, Jesus sets off down the track and runs a flawless race, but what about you? What about me? Well, you start running down the track the wrong way. And uh, rather than clearing every hurdle, you run into every hurdle and knock it down and fall over yourself. And as you're clumsily sort of making your way down the racetrack, you're knocking everybody over. I mean, talk about tripping people and causing them to fall. You, you make everybody else in the contest wipe out. And so what's the crowd doing as this happens? Well, they're not going wild and cheering for you. No, they're jeering. They're booing you off the track, calling for your rejection. Okay, now... Let's uh, up the ante now. This is where it becomes less funny and more serious, okay? So let's imagine that this race is a life and death contest, more like the Hunger Games. So what happens to the loser? Well, in this case, the loser is brought into the loser's circle, and what's awaiting them there? The chopping block. The loser is executed. But here's the most astonishing thing. After Jesus wins the race and receives the crown, he takes it off his head, he lays it down. He walks off the podium out of the winner's circle and he comes over to the loser's circle and before you even know what's about to happen, he lays his head down on the block and he's executed in your place. The crowd just goes silent. All the lights go off except for one spotlight now on the winner's circle and two, your own shock and surprise, the master of ceremony grabs you by the hand and walks you over to the winner's circle, leads you up the podium and then takes that crown that Jesus had just won and places it on your head. Now, what I want you to see is that is the gospel. And most of us only understand half of it. We don't understand or appreciate the second half of it, which is the most beautiful, the most invigorating, the most inspiring. Because you see, Jesus, through the gospel, did not only take your punishment, but he won a reward for you. And that's what it means to be united to him. Everything that is true of him becomes true of you. Now, this is what theologians call the passive and the active obedience of Jesus. Now, sometimes that word passive obedience is also misunderstood because, of course, Jesus actively obeyed God in everything in his life. He was never merely passive. Everything he did, everything he did took effort. 
But the idea behind passive obedience is this. Passive obedience means that Jesus willingly subjected himself to suffering and death. Now, that wasn't easy to do. That took effort on his part, but we call it passive obedience because it means that it was done to him, right? He, He didn't do it to himself. He willingly subjected himself to suffering and death. Now, we understand that part. We understand the passive obedience of Jesus, but what we forget is the active obedience of Jesus. He didn't just willingly subject himself to suffering and death, but he also lived the perfect life. So he not only died the death that you deserve to die, but he lived the life that you should have lived. And when you're united to him, well, then God not only treats Jesus as if he lived your life, but he treats you as if you had lived his life. And you see, you can't be a little bit united to Jesus. Either you're united to him or you're not. And God showers his favor upon you to the degree that you are united to Jesus, and that's 100% if you have put your simple faith and trust in him. And that's why we can say that if you're united to Jesus, God loves you with the same love and to the same degree that he loves his one and only son, and that is infinite. There's no limit to his love. That love is yours. Jesus did not just take your punishment, but he won a reward for you. And that is the standing, that is the status that you now have in God's eyes. That is what it means to receive the righteousness of Christ. And you see, that becomes the bedrock. That's the foundation of your identity. If you're a Christian, that is who you are, whether you realize it or not. So rather than trying to create our own identity by finding ourselves, we discover who we really are by being found in Christ. Now that's the source of the Christian life. But now I want to move on from the source to the process. All right, so what do you do with that? How are we supposed to live out this truth now? What what does the Christian life look like? Well, the point then is that in Jesus Christ, you already have everything you need in Jesus. There's nothing more you need. What could you possibly add to what Jesus has already done? Your zeal, your devotion, your moral performance, your religious activity, that doesn't add anything to what Jesus has accomplished for you. You already have the reward. It's yours in him. You are therefore complete. Right now, in Christ, you are complete. But that doesn't mean that then you're just supposed to sit back and relax and wait till the end of the world. Doesn't mean you're supposed to just sit back and relax and wait for the final resurrection. No, there's something we're supposed to do, but we, there's, there's a way in which we live the life now in light of that truth. That needs to become the operative principle that guides every thought and word and action. And Paul uses himself as an example. We could look at the Apostle Paul and we could say, well, look, he's an apostle, right? He's a super Christian. He is, by definition, what it means to be a mature Christian, right? But Paul says, no, not even he has arrived, as it were. No, Paul says, even he has a long, long way to go. There's still a race for him to run. So if we're complete in Christ, but we have not yet arrived in this life, then what does it mean for us to run the race that has been set before us? Well, in the first part of this passage, Paul uses that financial metaphor of credits and debits. But now he switches to this athletic metaphor of running a race. And he says of himself, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He's like a runner setting his sights on the finish line. So what's Paul hinting at here? 
Well, N.T. Wright is a biblical scholar and a friend. He actually joined us this past week for a gathering we put together for pastors as part of our Resound project. And he's written a commentary on Philippians. In fact, he's written a commentary on the entire New Testament. But this is what he says about this passage. He says, Paul wants to head off any idea that once you have become a mature Christian, you have, as it were, arrived in the sense that there's no more traveling to do. He's gently warning against any tendency to a super spiritual view of Christianity, which imagines that the full life of the age to come can be had in the present without waiting for the resurrection itself. Paul's quite clear about this. He has not arrived in that sense, and nor has anyone else. True maturity, he insists, actually means knowing that you haven't arrived and that you must still keep pressing on forwards towards the goal. So you have to keep pressing on. But how do you hold these things in tension? If you're now, right now, complete in Christ because of your union with him, then why do we have to press on towards anything else? Well, another way to put it would be to say, you know that you already have the gold medal. The crown is already yours. But you still have to finish the race. You know how the race is going to end. You know that the crown is yours, but you still have to run the race. And the question is, well, what does that look like in practice? So let me just say that this is a process. You receive the righteousness of Christ. You're complete in him. And now Jesus forms the basis of your identity. But the question is, how do we work that truth into our hearts so that that is the truth out of which we live our lives? Right, so if you put your trust in Christ, you receive his righteousness, that is objectively true. That's reality. That's who you are. And yet, it may not be part of our subjective experience. We're not living out of that truth. There are other things that play a more significant role in our day-to-day lives. So you could think about our identity in terms of several layers. There's several layers to our identity based on various identity factors that we look to to tell us who we are. And those factors can shift and move depending on the stage or age of life or the circumstances that we're facing. Now, I I thought of this a couple weeks ago when we held a memorial service for Nils Hansen, who was one of the longtime members of this church who died at 100 years old. And at that memorial service, we we celebrated Nils's life, and and many of the different aspects of Nils's identity were featured in the memorial service. So if you knew Nils, you knew that he cherished his Swedish heritage. He served as a Marine during World War II. He worked in the travel industry, uh, servicing the United Nations in particular. He, he was very involved in local, state, and national politics. He developed a deep, deep love for early Broadway. And he was a person of endless friends and enduring faith. And you see, all those various aspects of Nils's identity were featured in that memorial service. I mean, there's nothing like a funeral to figure out who you really are. Right? You, you, you listen to a string of eulogies and you, and you figure out, oh yeah, that, 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 that's who I am. <laughs> Too bad we're not there to hear it. So think about yourself then. What are the various ways in which you define your identity? And, and what are the various layers to that sense of self? And how have they shifted and moved over time? Well, if, if being in Christ is the objective truth of who you are at your core... While that might be objectively true, that might not be part of your subjective experience. You might be looking to other identity factors as the basis of your sense of self. 
And so how might that play out? Well, it could be that if you are criticized or if you are uh, attacked or if one of those identity factors that's important to you is thwarted or blocked, well, then you get really angry or anxious or upset or depressed or vengeful. And see, that's how you know that something else has moved into the center of your functional identity. So, for example, if you put politics at the very heart of who you are, well then, if your political party is not in power, you go ballistic, right? It's the only thing you can talk about, right? Because they are ruining the country, whoever they may be, right? So you put politics at the center, or it could be that you put your ethnicity or your cultural heritage at the center, and that might lead you to despise people of other ethnicities or races if you see them as a threat to your own people. Right, so you're threatened. Or it could be that you make the basis of your identity career success. That's how you know who you are. You're successful at what you do. But if that's the case, well, then you can't handle failure or you fall apart at the first sign of criticism when people attack your professional reputation. So you see what you've done in all those examples. You've made politics or you've made your ethnicity or you've made your career your righteousness. You've made those things your righteousness. Now, to be a Christian means that you have to work this objective truth into the center of who you are. If Jesus is the basis of your identity, if Jesus is your righteousness, then that needs to be the truth out of which you operate. And that's a process, right? That's going to take time. You, you have to figure out, how do I get that into the functional center of my life rather than allowing it to remain at the periphery? But if you do that, what happens? Well, things will begin to shift and move. You're still going to care about politics. You'll still want to be invested and involved. You're going to vote. You're going to strive to be a good citizen. But you're not going to be obsessed with it because you know that there's other things that are more important than politics. And the future of the world doesn't hang in the balance based on whether or not your political party is in power. No, you can, you can take a, a more nuanced view because you realize that the future rests in Jesus' hands, not in the hands of our political parties, where you still care about your ethnicity, you still care about your cultural heritage, but you're not threatened by other people of other races or ethnicities, and you realize that the, the future of the world doesn't depend on whether or not your people are on top, because you know that Jesus has drawn you into a new community made up of people from every tribe and language and people group. And Jesus teaches you to forgive those who have wronged you in the past or to embrace those who previously you might have once despised. Or you still care about your career. You strive to do your best, to work hard, to produce excellent work. But your sense of self is not pegged to your career success. And therefore, you can hold it lightly. You know, the future of the world doesn't depend on whether or not you achieve everything you ever wanted to through your career. And therefore, you can hold things lightly. You're not too elated by success. You're not too depressed by your failure. And you can withstand the criticism because it's not attacking the core of who you are. Jesus is at the core. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. This is a, a process. But we have to remind ourselves of the truth, the truth of where our true righteousness lies until we work that into the center. And then we'll find freedom We'll find freedom in all those other areas, and isn't that what we need? 
So that's the source and the process of the Christian life, but then what's the goal? Well, in verse 14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what is this goal? What's this prize? What's this upward call? Well, I think many times when we hear that language of upward call, we think, well, the ultimate goal, the ultimate prize is that we would move up, that we would escape this world and we would go up to heaven. But that conception of things might have more to do with Plato, and by that I mean the philosopher, not the child's toy, might have more to do with Plato than it does with Jesus. You see, as a result of the influence of Greek philosophy, we tend to think of heaven as someplace up there where we as disembodied spirits experience some ethereal world beyond the clouds. But that's not the promise that the scriptures lay out for us. And it can't be what uh, Paul's talking about here because in this very same chapter, Philippians chapter 3, just a few verses after what we read, Paul reminds us that our ultimate citizenship lies in heaven, the place where God dwells. And he says, from it, we await a savior. So he's saying the ultimate goal is not that we would go up to heaven as disembodied spirits, but rather we're waiting for heaven to come down to earth. From heaven, we are awaiting our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to transform this world. So he says, our true citizenship lies in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious bodies. So we're waiting for him to bring the life of heaven to earth, to usher in a new heavens and a new earth, to completely transform this world and our own bodies so that we might live in God's new world with new physical resurrected bodies. So that's the ultimate hope. That's the ultimate prize. That's what we're pressing towards. And so that's why Paul uses this, uses this athletic metaphor. Like a runner, we've got to set our sights on the finish line by anticipating God's promised future in our actions now. So he goes on to say, the one thing I do is forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward, I strain forward to what lies ahead. So think of Eric Liddell when he falls off the track and is sitting there in the grass, it, it would have been easy to think that he was sunk because of what had happened in the past. There's no chance of winning. He might as well give up. But he doesn't give in to defeat. Instead, he gets back up on his feet and he speeds to the finish line. And that's what Paul's telling us to do. Now, think about Paul. Paul, earlier in his life, had it completely wrong. He was completely wrong about Jesus. So much so that he rejected the faith and, not only that, he violently persecuted the early Christians. Can you imagine how much guilt and shame Paul felt over his past life? And how about you? How about me? There's so many things that we've done in the past that we regret that we can never take back. But you see, if Jesus died the death that we should have died and lived the life that we should have lived, then our past can never be held against us. And that's why Paul says the past is in the past. Forget about it. Lay it behind. Forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead because now the path is open to you. There's nothing standing in the way. Press on. Press on towards the goal, the prize, the upward call of Christ Jesus that is just there waiting for you. He's won the crown. It's waiting for you. He's waiting for you at the finish line. You see, that's what motivates you to run your heart out. And Paul has an interesting way of drawing this out. 
because he says, it's not that I've already obtained all this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. Now, you can see that, that Paul's engaging in a little play. He, he's engaging in a play on words here. It's not easy to draw it out, but here's the basic idea. He's saying, press on to grasp hold and to lay hold of that prize. But the reason why you can, the thing that motivates and inspires you to do so, is because Jesus has already grasped and laid hold of you, and nothing is ever going to snatch you out of his hand. Lay hold of the prize because he's already laid hold of you. And you see, that, that shows us that the Christian life that we're called to live is not a grind. We're not just grinding it out on the racetrack. We're not trying to make progress through our own hard work or unaided effort. No, what Paul is telling us is that we live the Christian life absolutely, fully, completely within the context of God's grace. He's not asking you to, to try to achieve something for yourself, but to receive what he's already won for you. And so he tells you, you can run this race. You can press on towards the goal. You could strain towards the future simply as a response to God's love. Everything you do now, you do with the knowledge that he's got a firm hand on your shoulder and he is never going to let go. So as we close, let me just ask a couple questions. If, if you're not yet a Christian or if you're not sure where you stand, I want you to stop and ask yourself, well, where is your righteousness? If you haven't placed your righteousness in Christ, if he is not the bedrock, the foundation of your identity, well, then it means that something else has taken center place in your heart and in your life. And how is that working for you? So how do you respond whenever that identity factor is criticized or attacked or thwarted or blocked? And could it be that that's the reason why you end up feeling so depressed or angry or resentful or anxious or fearful? You're not free because you haven't placed Jesus at the center. But if you are a Christian, if you have put simple faith in Jesus, if he is your righteousness, that's objectively true, and yet that may not yet be part of your subjective experience because all these other identity factors continue to fight for the allegiance of your heart. And so if it's not Jesus, it's going to be something else. It could be politics. It could be career. It could be your ethnicity, your cultural heritage. It could be your romantic relationships. It could be money or power. It could be your sexuality. It's going to be something. And so what you have to do is you've got to fight. You've got to work to bring Jesus into the center to live out that objective truth because that is the reality of who you really are. But what I want you to hear is it's okay. This is, this is a process for all of us. It was a process for Paul. Even Paul has to strain towards the goal. He hasn't arrived. He's not perfect yet, and neither are any of us, but it's not up to us, right? Because we receive all the power we need in and through Jesus. So forget about the past, whatever lies in the past. Put it in the past. It can't be held against you anymore, and strain forward towards the future. Get back on your feet. And press on, not desperately trying to win a prize for yourself, but knowing that Jesus has already won the ultimate reward for you. Jesus did not merely take your punishment. He won your crown. And therefore, press on. Keep fighting. 
keep running, knowing that everything in him is already yours. And that's what we celebrate here at this table. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to consider the true source of the Christian life, that it's not something that we achieve, it's something we receive. We receive the righteousness of Christ. That is the basis of our standing and our acceptability before you, and that becomes the core of who we really are. And help us, therefore, to understand the process of taking that objective truth and working it into the center of our lives so that it becomes part of our subjective experience. And help us to do that all the while as we strain forward towards this goal which you have laid out before us. And help us to see that everything we do now in service to you comes out of a context of loving response to what you have first achieved for us. You've already won the ultimate prize on our behalf. And so therefore, give us a clear vision of who you are and what you've done so that we might press on towards the goal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.